Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Here we are back for another special episode of Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me across the table, once again, Matthew. Hello, Mike Brown, creator and host. How are you today, sir? 10 out of 10, thank you. 10 out of 10. Yes. Are you sure? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I don't know if I am. I woke up a little wonky, but... Do you have a roof over your head? (laughs) I'm talking about feeling. I'm not talking about what I'm appreciative of. I write a gratitude list every night. What do you do? I hope I'm in it. Never. Oh, you bastard. Well, now you never will be. (laughs) I want to be on your gratitude list. Okay. I'm going to put you on my resentment list. (laughs) Uh, I belong there, I think. (laughs) You don't. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Opa, poutine style. Oh boy. (laughs) Whipping out the sigh. I don't recall learning anything about the Korean War in school in any of my history or social study classes. Doesn't mean it wasn't on the curriculum. I just may have missed it as I wasn't paying attention. Of course, I had seen the sanitized images of the conflict presented in the long-running sitcom with the memorable theme song, MASH. It was about a United States Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, the 4077th. My awareness that there had been a conflict at all was limited. It just wasn't on my radar. MASH fans will get the pun. As well, in parades and Remembrance Day memorial events, I'd seen soldiers announced as veterans of the Korean War, but that was the real extent of my knowledge. War in Korea? Oh yeah, that happened. My own lack of knowledge around the war on the Korean Peninsula is frankly embarrassing, so this was an opportunity for me to learn as I researched. I found numerous compelling and fascinating stories of heroism and sacrifice by the Canadians who fought in that war. I'll tell you about a few of them here. But first, but first, here's a bit of history about the events that led to the conflict. If it all seems oversimplified and ill-informed, it's because this is all new to me too. I'll do my best. There was an uneasy peace in the world for nearly five years after World War II ended with Japan's surrender in August of 1945, after two of its cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, were devastated by nuclear weapons dropped on them by the United States. This was the only usage of atomic weapons in history. As part of their capitulation agreement, Japan had to leave the territories it had occupied during its imperialist rampage around the South Pacific. Japan had annexed Korea in 1910. Many Korean nationals fled the country to China, where they founded the Provisional Government of the Republic of Korea in 1919. From 1919 and beyond, Korean communists led internal and external warfare against the Japanese. The communists were led by Kim Il-sung, one of the later founders of North Korea, its first supreme leader, 
and grandfather of that country's current leader, Kim Jong-un. In 1943, at the Cairo conference, China, the UK and the US all declared that, quote, in due course, Korea shall become free and independent, but under which system of government was not specified. After the Japanese departure, the capitalist United States and the communist Soviet Union split Korea in half along the 38th parallel, creating two zones of occupation, essentially setting the stage for what would become a proxy war between the superpowers on either side of the Cold War. From Wikipedia, quote, The Soviets administered the northern zone and the Americans administered the southern zone. In 1948, as a result of Cold War tensions, the occupation zones became two sovereign states, a capitalist state, the Republic of Korea, was established in the South under the authoritarian autocratic leadership of Syngman Rhee. And a socialist state, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, was established in the North under the totalitarian communist leadership of the aforementioned Kim Il-sung. Both governments of the two new Korean states claim to be the sole legitimate government of all of Korea, and neither accepted the border as permanent. Korea is a mountainous peninsula that is about twice the size of Newfoundland. In 1950, North Korea had a population of about 9 million, and South Korea had a population of 20 million people. Tensions on the peninsula turned to outright aggression when on June 25, 1950, the North Korean military, Korean People's Army, stormed across the 38th parallel and drove deep into South Korea, the UN immediately condemned the action as an act of war. The newly created United Nations Command gathered a multinational force to be sent to Korea, led by the General of the United States Army, Douglas MacArthur, who'd been instrumental in the war against Japan only five years earlier. Later President and then Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dwight D. Eisenhower and President Harry S. Truman were also key players during the conflict. Among the nations that stepped in to help was Canada. Although still tired and reeling from the losses incurred during the Second World War, the Canadian public was behind the effort to stop the aggression they were seeing in the region once again. Many of the soldiers called up to fight were veterans of World War II. Although they'd enjoyed only five years of peace at that point, they were ready to go again. We are so lucky to be in the generation that we're in. Yes. Because that is just horrible. Our war was a few hours long, the first Gulf War. My friend Danny drove an ambulance during wow. the first Gulf War, yeah. Wow. So that was our sort of big moment. Canada has done a lot of peacekeeping missions. Yeah. People from our generation have been in Cyprus, for example. Yeah. And obviously, after 2001, Afghanistan. During the three years of the Korean War, Canadian forces were involved in a number of significant battles. Many of the soldiers did not understand why they were there, but they volunteered anyway. Pierre Burton, author and journalist, was assigned to cover the war. He wrote later in a Maclean's Magazine article, quote, What struck me during my first few days with the Canadian troops was the appalling lack of understanding among the rank and file who, for the most part, had no real idea why they were in Korea. They were tough, resourceful and skilled, they had exchanged shots with the enemy, and discipline was not a problem. But the why we fight kind of lecture that had been part of the basic infantry training in the global war wasn't part of the syllabus, end quote. This was most likely due to the speed of response required for the troop buildup at the war's outset. In the book Everyday Heroes, Inspirational Stories from Men and Women in the Canadian Armed Forces, edited by Jody Mittick, Private Michael Zaboka retired, spoke of his memories of the war and the defense of Hill 667 during the Battle of Kapyong, a major skirmish in the war. In August of 1950, a month after the beginning of the war, Zaboka left rural rivers Manitoba and stowed away on a train bound for Fort Osborne in Winnipeg so he could volunteer to fight. Zaboka did not want to miss out on this war having been too young for the last. He had to sit on the sidelines and watch his older brother, who'd been in the RCAF and had flown 52 missions over the Atlantic hunting Nazi U-boats. Still, Michael was only 18 years old and turned away at first, being told he needed to be 19 to join. He said later, I was 14 years old when World War II ended, and I saw Korea as a chance for a great adventure of the kind I'd been denied in that war. 
Determined to get involved, he returned two weeks later and lied about his age to a different recruiting officer and was admitted to the Canadian Armed Forces on the spot. At his own urging, he was assigned to the storied Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. He was off to Wainwright, Alberta for training. But his group was soon sent to Fort Lewis in Seattle, and shortly after that, in November, they were off to Korea to fight. Zaboka thought he was going to be a part of a peacekeeping mission and that he'd be home in time for Christmas. That was not the case. The higher numbers of Chinese forces had overwhelmed UN forces who were in retreat. It was looking as though the communists might take the country if something did not happen right away. The brass decided they needed reinforcement as soon as possible, so training efforts were cut short to get as many UN troops onto the Korean Peninsula as quickly as they could get there. Private Zaboka and the others in his contingent were a part of the effort to relieve those beleaguered UN forces. Arriving in country in December of 1950, led by their crusty and mustachioed veteran commander Colonel Jim Stone, Zaboka was assigned to an 81mm mortar crew. In Everyday Heroes, Zaboka wrote that he was assigned to a number two position on the mortar team. Quote, It was my responsibility to feed bombs or shells into my mortar. This required good coordination because a double feed into a barrel would cause an explosion and wipe out the whole mortar crew, as happened on more than one occasion. A double feed occurred when a mortar shell was inserted into the mortar barrel too quickly before the first shell had exited. If the two shells met inside the barrel, they would explode. End quote. Private Zaboka's first shocking introduction to the horrors of war came in February of 1951, when he and his platoon arrived on the front lines near the Korean village of Kondun. From Everyday Heroes, quote, A multitude of dead and naked bodies were scattered all around us. They were black American soldiers. The Chinese had bayoneted and shot them while they slept, then removed their weapons and clothing. Apparently, these American soldiers had posted a single sentry on the previous evening and had not dug slit trenches. Although only about 68 bodies were counted on that day, it was subsequently reported that more than 200 had been killed. In later years, I read a report by the Chinese Communist Forces CCF-116 Division claiming that two companies of U.S. 23rd Infantry Regiment had been annihilated at dawn on February 14, 1951. End quote. The weather was cold and crappy. According to the book Triumph at Capyong, Private Zaboka's reaction to the Canadian issue helmets was typical. Quote, We never wore our helmets. They were heavy and uncomfortable. We just threw them away. We wore balaclavas or peaked hats. Further on in the same chapter, a soldier from B.C. named John Bishop was quoted as saying, We're a winterized people. Only the Chinese were dressed for winter weather better than we were. We were Canadians. We said, we can do this better than anyone else. Private Saboka also wrote, Our Canadian Arctic gear, our parkas and wind pants, they were really comfortable and warm. The pants, however, made a loud noise when we walked. A bad idea on night patrols and our hobnailed boots were heavy and also noisy. We would never give our parkas away, but we'd use American boots whenever we could scrounge them. I can't remember where I read this, but there's something about how statistics can be read the wrong way. Yes. And the fact that after helmets were introduced in World War I, mm -hmm. the number of walking wounded increased, and somebody was saying, helmets are dangerous. And then somebody else like, was like, well, no, just more people are alive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, people lived because they were wearing helmets and were able to be walking wounded rather than dead yeah, on the battlefield. Yeah, and yeah, Guy has it right. Canadians know how to handle the cold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, he said, we are a winter people. We, we definitely are. We are. You know, Margaret Atwood says that the weather, mm -hmm. um, the environment actually is the biggest connector of Canadians and creation of Canadian identity. That's, that's fascinating. That we're sort of, as Americans are a little bit more homesteaders, mm -hmm. we, we're a bit more fort people. And there's a theory that the idea of A at the end of our sentences is actually a request for consensus because we're, when we're up here shivering in the cold, we, we need to get together to survive. So I think we should go cut some more firewood, eh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
For the next few months, the battles raged. Seoul was retaken by the UN forces, who then pushed the now retreating Chinese back across the 38th parallel and continued advancing north with the hope of retaking the whole country. During a spring offensive, though, the Chinese counterattacked and pushed into the south again. According to the Veterans Affairs website, the South Korean forces in one area were overwhelmed and hurriedly fell back, putting them in danger of being overrun and wiped out. The 27th British Commonwealth Infantry Brigade, along with its Canadian contingent, was called up from reserve to the Kapyong Valley to cover this desperate retreat. The Kapyong Valley was dominated by surrounding hills. A defensive position was quickly established with the 3rd Royal Australian Regiment on Hill 504, the 2 PPCLI, Princess Patricia's on Hill 677, and the 1st Middlesex Regiment, a British unit, situated south of the Canadians. During the night of April 23rd, the Australians came under heavy attack, holding out until the next day before being forced to withdraw. Their retreat left the Canadians exposed and, at 10pm on April 24th, the communist assaults began. Many of the soldiers trapped on Hill 677 that night had the same thoughts, that they were seriously outnumbered by Chinese and North Korean soldiers, and if they and their buddies made it through the night, it would be a miracle. Zaboka said he was sure that Chinese had no idea how vulnerable the Canadian forces were during the attack. He felt it was the constant machine gun and mortar fire from the Canadian position atop the hill raining down on the Chinese below that won the day. From Triumph at Kapyong. Quote, In my opinion, the 50 caliber and 30 caliber machine guns firing in unison near the tactical HQ saved all of us at Kapyong, says Mike Saboka. Their vicious firepower is thunderous and overwhelming. It is fascinating watching the various fire patterns. The trajectory of the machine gun tracers is so close, they are almost firing upon us. The Chinese, having already suffered heavy losses, must have felt they had suddenly encountered a powerful and well-armed enemy. I felt very relieved when it was over. They were advancing uphill in the rear of our position. It was a very close thing, end quote. Michael Zaboka went on to become a teacher and later authored six books. Listowel, Ontario's Gerald Edward Gowing was there too. He was an operator of a Bren machine gun after only a few weeks of training. He saw heavy action in Korea, including the battle at Kapyong, Hill 677, where his regiment held the line under withering enemy fire. Gowing was later presented with a U.S. presidential unit citation for bravery. He said, quote, We were surrounded on the hills of Kapyong, and there was a lot of fire. We were pretty well out of ammunition and out of food, too. We did get some air supplies dropped in, but we were actually surrounded. Here's some audio of Mr. Gowing telling his story many years later for a Veterans Affairs Memory Project. And walking up those muddy mountains, were you under fire at those times? Oh, yes. So that's another added part of the adventure. Yeah. So explain to me, if you can, describe to me walking up a muddy slope, nothing to grab onto, and you're under fire. Oh, it's pretty nerve-wracking, but but as a, as a youngster, you really don't... It really don't make much difference, no matter where you are. If you're under fire, I guess, it don't really matter where you are, but uh, going up some of these mountains, you're on your belly some of the time, some of the time you're on your feet, but uh, when you're under fire, it's, it's, it's scary. Don't ever think it's not scary. I was scared, believe me. Like when you're under fire, you never know if you're gonna get hit or not. You're hoping you never do. You get down as low as you can. If you happen to be in a slit trench and a, and a mortar bomb comes over or something like that, you never know for sure until it goes by. You can hear the whistle and when it quits whistling, you never know where it is. But as long as it's whistling going over top of you, it's still going. So you know that you're okay there. When I was under fire at some times, they were rolling. The, the, the North Koreans and the Chinese were rolling their grenades and stuff down the hill. All of a sudden, the being uh, young and foolish and adventurous looks different from when you're under fire. 
Yeah, you know your adventures, but you never realize what you're really getting into. War is hell. He sounds like a good old boy, doesn't he? Yeah, you know what? Like, he sounds like he, uh, he sounds a lot like somebody's grandpa, and I'm sure he is. Yeah, he actually sounds, where was he from again? Ontario. Yeah, he sounds like, he actually sounds like my grandpa. Oh, that's weird. Um, yeah, because they're probably from the same area. When I was listening to that, I was thinking, you know what I was thinking? I'm no, like, I, I don't. Like, Tell I was, us. I was, like, I was totally upset when the ice maker in my fridge broke this summer. Yeah. And this puts it so into perspective. Yeah, there's people who are on the hill above you rolling grenades down to your where you're running up to try and kill them the people south korea owe men like him so much don't Mm, they yeah and i think south koreans are actually are very grateful for canada's contribution i mean there's there's multiple been there many times Mm -hmm. one one i it's and it they're people worth fighting for wonderful people in that country yeah there's multiple memorials for canada's contribution there too In a transcript of the Veterans Affairs film, Land of the Morning Calm, three of the Canadian combatants present at the Battle of Capion told of what came as the turning point in the attack, finally repelling the Chinese assault. Ray Nickerson said, quote, The company commander called artillery down on their positions to clear the area. Everybody got down in their trenches and they called down the artillery. William Chrysler said, This is our own people, but it's the only way you could drive the Chinese off them. And it did the trick. From what I understand, our own fire didn't hurt anybody. They were deep enough in, but it killed a lot of the Chinese, or enemies, and drove them out of their position. It's a good thing we stayed there and moved in, because Seoul would have fallen again. How far back we would have been shoved, who knows. Gerald Edward Gowing, who we heard from earlier, said... We were told to stay in our position, and we did, and we finally got out of there. But I'll tell you, that was one scary moment. Let me tell you. According to Triumph at Kapyong, following are the medals awarded at Kapyong after 12 hours of hellish battle. Colonel Jim Stone, Distinguished Service Order, Bar. A bar is awarded when a soldier has already won the decoration in a previous action. At Kapyong, Stone's bar was in fact his third DSO. His first DSO and subsequent bar were awarded for his exploits in the Second World War. Captain Wally Mills, Military Cross. Mills was the commanding officer of D Company, which was shelled by its own artillery to prevent it from being overrun. Private Wayne Mitchell, Distinguished Conduct Medal, second only to the Victoria Cross. Mitchell, though repeatedly wounded, blazed away single-handedly at enemy soldiers with his machine gun to prevent his position with B Company from being overrun. Lance Corporal Smiley Douglas, Military Medal. Douglas lost a hand trying to dispose of a live hand grenade that had fallen among his B Company platoon. Private Ken Barwise, Military Medal. He is credited with killing six enemy soldiers at very close range, recaptured a machine gun, and ran a gauntlet of heavy fire to deliver ammunition to hard-pressed 10 platoon, Mike Levy's, in D Company. From Veterans Affairs Canada, quote, Holding the line at Kapyong was an impressive achievement, but came at a cost. 10 Canadians were killed and 23 were wounded, a total that would be considered relatively light in view of the fierce fighting there, and a testament to the skill and organization of the defenders. The Canadian-Korean War Memorial Garden is situated northeast of Kap Yonggun and just below the hills that were defended by Canadian forces in the Battle of Kap Yong in April of 1951. In the 1970s, Mr. Chi Kap Chong, a retired Korean journalist and former member of the Korean National Assembly, selected land for a memorial park. He raised funds to purchase the land and supervise the construction. This memorial commemorates Canada's assistance to his country during the Korean War. And we'll take a break right here. And we are back. Any thoughts so far on this episode, Matthew? I never got to see the Canadian War Memorial. Mm-hmm. When I was, I've been there many times, but yeah. I did go to the War Museum. Yes. 
which is really cool. I've never been to a war museum, which is weird because I have a lot of military DNA heritage and my dad's dad was in the military. So, I mean, I don't know why I've never... It's fascinating. And, and the one thing, like you, like you said at the beginning of this, mm -hmm. I wasn't that familiar with the Korean War. Yeah. So they did do have a wall with all the soldiers that died. And I got to the, well, I was, it all upset me, but I got to the Canadian bit with all the names and mm -hmm. it just sort of takes your breath away. Yeah. The interesting thing about the Korean War is it's so complex. The politics behind it are so complex. I guess that's the way it is with every war. World War II is, seems simpler to point to and say yeah. this is why that happened because Germany annexed Poland and then began its romp through Europe. World War One is a little bit more difficult. World War One is another one that is it was weird. Really weird. They say it started with the assassination, but at the same time there was more to it than an assassination. Yeah. yeah. As winter was setting in on November 22, 1951, only months after the Battle of Kapyong, Canadians were involved in another battle for yet another mound of earth. This one was called Hill 355 and would be the location of two brutal battles. From Veterans Affairs, quote, Canadian troops from the Royal Canadian Regiment, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, and the Royal 22nd Regiment, nicknamed the Van Dues, were shifted to a new stretch of the front lines almost seven kilometers long that bordered on the American-held Hill 355. The Van Dues were just getting settled in their positions under the shadows of Hill 227 and Hill 355 when the Chinese began an intense bombardment. As the rain changed to snow falling from the sky, Shells and rockets also poured down on the heads of the combatants all night long. Engineers struggled to keep the muddy, deeply rutted supply routes open in an effort to supply the soldiers on the hill who were hunkered down in their trenches as the seemingly endless barrage continued. It was only quiet for a few moments the next day before the throngs of Chinese soldiers with bayonets affixed to their rifles charged up the hill toward the Canadians and Americans defending their positions. It was a bloody battle with heavy casualties on both sides. Even though Chinese held most of Hill 355 by that afternoon, many of the Canadians and Americans stood their ground. At 6 p.m. that evening, tank and artillery fire and soon more tanks arrived to assist. From the Loyal Edmonton Regiment Military Museum's website, quote, At dusk, two companies attacked, surrounding one of D Company's platoons and dislodging another. At 9.30 p.m., the Chinese seemed to have withdrawn. A few hours later, the battalion scout and sniper platoon, led by Corporal Leo Major, a winner of a Distinguished Conduct Medal in Holland during World War II, occupied the fallen position. Less than 30 minutes later, the Chinese attacked with 300 men, outnumbering his platoon by 20 to 1. When his commanding officer ordered him to return to the battalion area, Major coolly suggested that he withdraw a short distance and that the enemy then be engaged with mortars. The commanding officer agreed, and the Chinese were caught in the open, breaking up their attack. For his, quote, personal coolness and leadership, he was awarded a bar to the DCM earned originally in 1945. The next day, the 25th, was relatively quiet for the Van Dues, but in the evening, D Company once again came under attack. Unknown numbers of Chinese were beaten back by artillery and by battalion 81mm mortars. This was the last of seven attacks on the position over three days. Military historian David Berkison comments in his study, Blood on the Hills, the Canadian Army and the Korean War, quote, One conclusion is inescapable. The Canadians had fought well, both officers and men, and the 84-hour travail was one of the finest defensive actions in the history of the Canadian Army. 16 Canadians were killed, 44 wounded, and 3 taken prisoner. Almost a year later, Hill 355 would play host to yet another battle of a similar nature. On October 17, 1952, the Royal Canadian Regiment, now occupying the hill, came under heavy fire by enemy artillery. The shelling went on for days. By the 22nd of October, the infrastructure the Canadians had built there had been catastrophically damaged. Repair was impossible under the intense artillery barrage. According to Legion magazine, the telephone wires were cut and ammunition storage pits were caved in. Every soldier knew what was coming when the shelling stopped. As had happened before, 
They watched as a flood of Chinese soldiers poured onto Hill 355 on October 23rd, just as they had nearly a year before. Under heavy assault and with communications cut off, some of the Canadians were forced to abandon their defensive positions to the surging enemy. Some played dead in the trenches now occupied by Chinese soldiers, either being captured or barely escaping later. From the book Deadlock in Korea by Ted Barris, quote, From 6 o'clock that night, October 23rd, until 6 the next morning, we were firing, Bob Bunting said. A bombardier, number two gun, with A battery, Bunting can recall few more hectic times in his artillery career. All night it was angle of sight, elevation, and charge directions from the OP to the command post to the battery positions. The whole regiment joined in. The barrels of our guns were so bloody hot the paint was just burning off them. It sounded like bees buzzing over our heads, said Herb Cloutier of the artillery's continuous firing. Chinese held the hill for most of the day, but a counterattack was called around midnight, and the hill was retaken on October 24, 1952. There were 18 Canadian dead, 43 wounded, and 14 soldiers had been taken prisoner by Chinese forces. Spotters in the choppers high above the now quiet battlefield counted at least 600 Chinese bodies laying in the muck. Canadian soldiers reported they'd seen numerous other bodies of dead enemies being dragged off by their comrades, so the number was assumed to be much higher. According to Ted Barris, on November 1, 1952, the Royal Canadian Regiment turned over Hill 355 to the 1st Royal Australian Regiment with the following notification. Quote, this is to certify that Kowangsan has been handed over slightly the worse for wear, but otherwise defensible. The Chinese attacked again several times in November, but no ground was yielded. For the next few months, UN forces gathered strength, pouring into South Korea by the thousands to reinforce the worn-out soldiers there already. They were finally able to drive the North Koreans back across the 38th parallel. There was never a clear winner in the battle for Korea. It was very much a stalemate. Hostilities came to an end in July of 1953 when an armistice was negotiated. As a result, the North Korean peninsula again found itself divided largely along the 38th parallel, but this time with adjustments that reflected the territorial gains achieved by UN forces somewhat to the north of the demarcation line. A demilitarized zone separating the armies was also established with North Korean forces patrolling one side of the line and U.S. and South Korean forces on the other. The territorial situation between North and South Korea has remained unchanged since 1953. You know, and it's, it's fascinating, though, that North Korea and South Korea have been in a state of war since this. The, the war never ended. Yeah. It's actually, they're technically still in war. They're just in ceasefire. Relations between North and South Korea over the decades have been characterized by uneasiness, to say the least, and at times by outright hostility. Meanwhile, South Korea has become a vigorous, prosperous, free enterprise economy, while North Korea has languished under a die-hard communist regime. Looking at satellite imagery of the Korean peninsula at night, one can see the bright lights of vibrant cities to the south, below the 38th parallel. But above, in North Korea, things are almost in darkness, with only a sprinkle of lights throughout with the largest concentration in its capital, Pyongyang. Matthew, you've spent some time in Korea. Can you describe some of your experiences in the country and the culture of the Korean people? Yeah, um, I, first of all, love, love, love Seoul. Okay. After London, Seoul is my next favorite city. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's, um, I spent a lot of time there for work, mm -hmm. often like a few months at a time. Sure. I actually almost took a full-time job there. What What is it about Seoul that really, excuse the pun, speaks to your soul? <laughs> the city itself is this really interesting clash of Asia, mm -hmm. and uh, but so completely modern at the same time. So let me give you an example. I'd walk into my office building mm -hmm. in Ganyam. Yep. And it's this like gleaming skyscraper with this ultra modern lobby. Yeah. And uh, as you're walking to the elevator, there's a, a woman mm -hmm. in one of those traditional really high pink dresses. Okay. Right? Yeah. Just bowing to you as you come in. 
Oh, wow. So, so you have this ultimate sort of like cultural heritage thing in this, in this modern building. That's cool. Tokyo is kind of like that yeah. too. And um, my version of Seoul mm-hmm. is quite interesting in, in that I'd be put up in the Grand Hyatt, which is like the place. So it's fancy. And it's like a eugenics program. Like oh. All the beautiful people there and, and plastic surgery is big in Seoul. So I, I felt like this big frumpy North American with all these beautiful people, right? Mm-hmm. But um, did you know that Seoul is actually still... It's, it's within normal artillery range of North Korea. Yeah. And so one day I'm in the hotel and I get this piece of paper slipped under the door and I pick it up and it's on a really lovely card stock with gold lettering. Mm-hmm. And it's saying that there's a um, practice for an invasion and there'll be soldiers in the streets and not to be... Not, not to be not, terrified. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Wow. But the food's great. And just the people, it's... it's um, I just met people and just made friends and had great times. What's interesting is how different the lifestyles are on either side of the border. I mentioned earlier that if you look at a a satellite photo Mm -hmm. of the two Koreas of the peninsula, how dark the one above. And it's really sort of metaphorical in a way. There you go, people, the difference between communism and capitalism. Yeah. Capitalism, you know, is not perfect but you're much better off. Yeah, it's it's interesting hearing somebody say, well, communism just hasn't been done right yet. Oh, really? Well, there's a reason, right? <laughs> right. And that's, Because there's human beings involved? Yeah, and capitalism hasn't totally been done right either, mm-hmm. right? Because there's human beings involved. Exactly. But so also there's like, there's lots of hills in the city, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a very Christian population in Seoul. Oh, interesting. Lots of churches with, and they have big sort of lit up crosses. I wonder where that influence comes from. I didn't really look into it. Did you it. know that baseball is actually like their number one sport? As yes. Well, yeah. American baseball. Yeah. I think some of that was the influence of, of, of Americans coming in. I spent a bit of time on the American army base in Seoul. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me why. Did I have fun with the soldier? Yes. Um, <laughs> oh boy. Don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> Oh, no. He wasn't saying anything. Um, <laughs> every time I've gone, I just love that city so much. It sounds like you are very familiar with Korea. Love it. It's interesting, though, that you've spent so much time there and had not a lot of information about the Korean War. No, just what I, you know, I went to the war museum, but, mm-hmm. you know, they've, my interest in the war was more the ongoing war between the North and the South. Right. And, but when I went there, it was when I realized, oh, Korean War and realized Canada was involved. And I, th- and, I think yeah. Dennis Rodman can save us all, really. Oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> On June 28, 2021, the Canadian National Defense Department and Canadian Armed Forces released a statement asking for the public's assistance in locating the families of 16 Canadian Army soldiers who went missing during the Korean War in the 1950s. The aim of the initiative is to utilize DNA to help in the identification of remains found on several battlefields during the conflict. Some of those are soldiers who were buried in graves marked as unknown. The Canadian Armed Forces Casualty Identification Program's goal is to repatriate the remains of Canadian soldiers and return them to their families, regardless of how long ago the conflict took place. From the Government of Canada website, The 16 soldiers went missing in action between October 11, 1951 and July 12, 1953. Their remains are presumably located where they were last seen in the demilitarized zone, the DMZ, between the Republic of Korea and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. The Republic of Korea's Ministry of National Defense Agency for Killed in Action, Recovery and Identification, known as MAKRI, has been working towards locating and recovering the remains of soldiers from the DMZ where Canadian soldiers are reported to have gone missing. Working in close relationship with the MAKRI, the CAF, Canadian Armed Forces, is looking for relatives to help identify through genealogical, familial, and or historical research if any discovered remains are those of the missing Canadian Army soldiers. They've had some success as well. According to the Government of Canada's news release on the initiative, since 2007, the Casualty Identification Program has successfully identified the human remains of 32 Canadians. While five sets of remains have been buried as unknown soldiers in cases where identification was not possible. 
Additionally, the program has successfully identified the graves of two Canadians previously marked as unknown since 2019. And you'll find a link to the news release with a full list of names of the missing in the show notes for this episode on darkpoutine.com, just so you can see if your family name is among them. Many Canadian families have stories they tell of their relatives in Canada's military at some point. I couldn't dig up any stories of relatives of mine being involved in the Korean War, but as I've mentioned in previous Remembrance Day episodes, my adoptive dad's father served during World War I. Both of my DNA grandfathers served in the Second World War. My father's father, originally from Newfoundland, was a naval commander, later captain of the HMCS Sackville, the last surviving corvette from the era and is now a museum in the Halifax Harbour. Diane's father, Royce Ring, was a member of the Black Watch, which is the oldest Highland regiment in Canada. He met Diane's mom, a Dutch girl with some Jewish heritage, in Amsterdam during the liberation of Holland from Nazi rule. After a divorce, my grandmother married another veteran of World War II, John Croft. John, Diane's stepdad, was very apparently a colorful character. A newspaper article remembered a portion of John Croft's service during the Second World War. Diane sent me the clipping so I could include it here. It says, quote, John Croft and his older brother Harold, both of Hansport, joined the war as infantry soldiers. As a member of the North Nova's Baker Company, John saw many battles and was wounded three different times between June 1944 and February 1945. The brothers were separated, Harold to Italy and John to France and then Belgium. Then, by sheer dumb luck, they met by accident in an English pub at War's End. Both were to be sent home the next morning. Heading out that evening, they discovered that the military police had left a jeep running just outside. John didn't think his brother could make it back to camp, so he climbed in behind the wheel and drove him home. When he returned with the jeep, the police were unsympathetic and charged him with joyriding. The sentence was 28 days in detention. End quote. The article is accompanied by John, my step-grandfather, and his brother, Harold, dressed in their combat uniforms at the end of the war, grinning away. Diane said in a message to me, They were rascals, probably spent a lot of time in the brig during the war overseas, but did see some action. Obviously, if you're wounded three times, you saw something. Are there any family stories that you can relate about military service? Matthew. I can relate that, but first of all, I want to point out that I think maybe you get some of your rascalness from your grandfather. He wasn't genetically my grandfather, yeah, but yeah. But, you know, something there. Yes, my grandfather, um, being my father's father, was in World War II. Okay. Uh, have you heard of the Battle of Dieppe? I definitely have heard of the Battle of Dieppe. The, the Great Slaughter of Canadians? Yes. So my grandfather literally, you know, jumped off the boats and was charging forward and almost his entire regiment was wiped out. The Essex Scottish Regiment mm -hmm. from Windsor, Ontario. And he was captured by the Nazis oh, and spent wow. the rest of the war in a Nazi POW camp. Wow. What was that like? It, I can't imagine. It fucked him up. So Yeah. Well, I had to mess him up. Yeah. Did he ever talk about his experience there? Just that it was horrible. He hmm. slept on a wet board for yeah. a couple of years yeah made lots of health problems he was i have a photo of him being paraded through the streets after he was captured oh so is like a, a prize capture by the nazis yeah. and look french people yeah here in dieppe these are the people who are trying to save you yeah. and we're humiliating them yeah so yeah. it's it's really interesting that my when my father and my mother got married my grandfather mm -hmm. met my great uncle mm -hmm. on my mom's side yeah and started talking realized that he was on the ground with canadians yeah and my great uncle who's uh, by the way my grandfather my grandmother was american okay so he was flying oh and so they're actually part of the same invasion and they didn't know that and my mom and dad got married and they realized they're on that day together that's really really interesting yeah Canada being such a small country population-wise, it's not surprising to me that people run into each other yeah. uh, in that way. But it's it's really cool that our government is trying to keep the history alive by these little projects, these memory projects, having uh, veterans tell their stories and those kind of things like we heard from 
Yeah. Uh, you know, we've, we've heard from a few veterans here in this episode. Yeah. There's way more stories on the Veterans uh, Canada website. So please check that out. And uh, they're trying to do some good work there. Yeah. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 194, Remembrance Day 2021, Canada in the Korean War and Family Stories. Mm. Not like fam- maybe family war stories, I guess. <laughs> All families have war stories. Yeah. Time to move on to voicemails. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. So one of our patrons slash Donut Money donors called in this week (laughs) with a little little voicemail. Thank you for trying to call a thousand times. However... (laughs) I love you, Katrina. (laughs) Your your one voicemail is fantastic. Uh, let's, Let's have a listen. Hi, Mike and Matthew, and Steve, too, of course. This is Katrina Hockey, calling from Southern Maine, but originally from Nova Scotia. And yes, my name is, in fact, Hockey, and I am from Canada. I may be better known as Zito's mom on the barnyard. Anyhow, I wanted to thank you both for an amazing true crime podcast, and in my opinion, it's the best it's ever been since Matthew joined. The hard work and research you both put into this podcast is appreciated. And as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, I wanted to thank you for your sensitivity when addressing mental health and substance use disorders, as this is so important, something other podcasts don't necessarily do, and it doesn't go unnoticed. Something I love about this podcast that brings it from my top three favorite true crime podcasts to my absolute favorite is the community. Dark Routine is more than a podcast. It is a community where we support one another through the ups and downs life throws our way. And this is something I have never before experienced with a podcast and truly appreciate working in the mental health field. I'm just going to provide a brief little story about some personal feedback on the nurture versus nature debate. So as a child, I experienced my fair share of traumas that I won't get into, but apparently I was kind of an angry child when I was five, such that my kindergarten teacher told my parents I would grow up to be nothing more than a juvenile delinquent. Well, as it turns out, I went to school to be a nurse and worked as a nurse in juvenile correctional settings, which is kind of funny. Before going back to school to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner, which is what I do today and I'm incredibly passionate about. So I kind of feel like some of us who have experienced traumas use that trauma as a catalyst to drive us into professions in which we can work with others and help others who may have suffered similar traumas. Anyhow, that's all for now. Thanks again for a great true crime podcast. Stay safe, keep up the great work, and go take a shit in your hat. Bye for now. Thank you so much, Katrina. That is awesome. And I am so glad that someone named Hockey is actually from Nova Scotia because did you know it's arguable, but hockey was invented in Nova Scotia. Boom, boom. There you go. Monk, mic drop. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Is that true? Apparently. Okay. I haven't really looked into it that far, but people do argue whether it was created there, but... Yeah, you might as well claim it. Yeah, let's claim it. <laughs> it's like Lunenburg, Lunenburg County is the pine tree capital of Christmas tree capital of the world. And basketball was invented in Canada as well. Yeah, by an American. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but we can, we can say hey, it was here we on... claim it. It's not an away game. Come on, America. Exactly. Give us something. <laughs> oh, boy. So here we have an e- a voicemail from someone named Lacey, and she has comments about a different show. I wonder which one it is. Hi, um, it's Lacey from Calgary again. Um, I just, I had to call. I just listened to Supernatural Circumstances, and I have to say it was freaking amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I sent an email to the email you guys listed on your podcast. Hopefully it went through, but... I just have nothing but good things to say. I'm not even a big, like, I don't know where I fall on the spectrum of belief, but I've never had a supernatural experience myself. Let's just put it that way. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm keeping an open mind. I know that there's a lot more to learn in this journey, but I think that this podcast is a must listen. And that's all I have to say. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. 
So she's calling about my new show, Supernatural Circumstances, which I do with Morgan Knudsen. Wow, this this a little bit of a crossover here. This is Isn't that this funny? is better than Murder She Wrote and Magnum PI. And uh, oh, you know, I would like to see Murder She Wrote and uh, Matlock. What well, did that ever happen? It should have if it did. Should have. I can't. I don't think it did. They're probably not on the same networks. No. But anyway, thank you so much, Lacey. And yes, you can hear Supernatural Circumstances. Anywhere you get your podcast or go to supernaturalcircumstances.com for more information. How about that? It's like I didn't even have to plug the other show because somebody <laughs> else did it for us. I listened to most of the first episode. <laughs> I fell asleep. You always fall but asleep. It's not because it was boring. It's just I fall asleep. Yes. Matthew falls asleep during podcasts, including this one that we do. I, every once in a while, I have to throw something at him. <laughs> Let's listen to this next one. Hi, Mike. My name is Lindsay. I am calling you from a very tiny town in Ontario. No, it's not tiny town, but it's close to it. Um, I'm just wanting to let you know that I've listened to your podcast since the beginning. I had to take a little bit of a hiatus uh, when the world turned upside down due to COVID, um, just being around my kids a lot, wanting to spend some more time with them. Um, since that has all kind of dialed down a little bit, I have found myself in a little bit of a mental crisis. So I just want to let you know that I do appreciate all of your guys' hard work and respect in your cases. I do enjoy binge listening to all the old episodes that I have missed in the last year. And as we all like to say, go poop in a toque. Cheers. Well, thanks, Lindsay. Yeah, I think a lot of people are sort of at the end, their wits end with this COVID nonsense. I'm glad we are seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. The world seems to be opening up. Borders are opening up again. Uh, they're looking at a, another vaccine for us all, a booster vaccine uh, sometime in the spring of next year. So hopefully this is all over and we can all get back to some semblance of normal, uh, probably one where you might wear a mask once in a while when you go out. I want to know which tiny town she lives in. Yeah, she didn't say. Because I'm like, okay, I know the tiny towns. <laughs> Matthew Matthew is from the tiny I'm towns. Like, I'm like, I wonder if she's from a tiny town near my tiny town. Yeah. So if you want to mention yourself in the Yumbriard and uh, let Matthew know which tiny town that you're from, go ahead and do that. But thanks for calling, Lindsay. And we're glad that we can be uh, any sort of comfort during tough times. Uh, so... There's another voicemail to listen to. We've had a lot of calls this week. Let's take a listen to this one. It is from rather far away. Hello, um, Mike and uh, Matthew. <laughs> My name is Tilla, and I'm calling from Norway. Uh, I just wanted to say that, Mike, I actually just now ordered your book, and I'm looking forward to seeing um, reading it and I love your show um, you can actually try to guess uh, what my work is and I love listening to the show and keep up the good work and take a good shit on you, in your hat bye wow I just had a Norwegian tell me to take a shit in my hat that's awesome that is fantastic what do you think uh, she does there in Norway Tula she works at Oslo's Viking Ship Museum. Whoa! Yeah. What do, is, is she like a an actress who plays a Viking? Yeah, musicals. What? Wow! Yeah, I wish there was more Viking <laughs> musicals. There are. There, you, it's called Wagner. Wagner. Have you been to Norway? <laughs> I have not been to Matthew. You know, I've never been anywhere other than Paris. I want. You know, I missed Norway. Hmm. How come? Um, I've been to Finland and Sweden, which like right up against Norway. Sure. Just never got to Norway for some strange reason. And yeah. it's such a shame. I do want to see that part of the world because I am pining for the fjords as it were. Yeah. So. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It looks beautiful. Everything yeah. that I've seen. So, uh, well, enjoy your time there at the museum, the Viking Museum <laughs> in Oslo. Viking Ship Museum. Viking Ships. Yes. 
Viking ships. Actually, Vikings discovered North America long before that uh, Christopher Columbus nonsense. Anyway, just saying. And that's it for voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Now it's on to patrons Patreons. and donut money donors. Let's see if we got any donut money or patron love this week. Who's that good looking guy on your screen? That was Keith David. Okay. And he is an actor who is not only in this movie, which is They Live with Rowdy Roddy Piper, oh but also Platoon. Okay. Yeah. He's a great actor. So first up for patrons this week, we have Camille. And Camille didn't leave any address. We don't know where she's from. So where is Camille from? Where on the planet is Camille from? Busan. Busan. Okay, so we're going with the Korean theme. Yeah, so she's sort of, Busan sort of on the coast, sort of southeast Korea. Have you seen Train to Busan? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. So you did see a horror movie. Koreans make the best horror movies. They really do. I love Korean horror movies. And Squid Game was okay. Yeah, Squid Game was great. It was super. Dark. Well, it was also super uh, predictable because it, it used a lot of tropes from Japanese Oh, smell you. <laughs> well, anyway. But it was good. I liked it. I but didn't she's say from Busan like and she works on the trains. Well, there you go. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you, Camille. Thank you, Camille. Next up, from Fairbanks, Alaska. I think this is our first person from Fairbanks. Mike Kennedy. What an awesome thing to have somebody from Alaska. That's cool. Become a patron. I really, really, really want to go to Alaska. I know it's just a drive away, like 24 hours. However, I want to drive up there. I think it would be fantastic to do. How long is the drive? Like 20, 24 this is hours. is directly north of us, really. Yeah, yeah, it's like a really, really far away. What does Mike do up there in Fairbanks, Alaska? Uh, I'm not exactly sure where Fairbanks is. Okay. Maybe it's across the way from Unfairbanks. <laughs> but a boom. I think he's a guard at the border keeping us nasty Canadians out of America. Oh, it's probably a good idea. Yeah. I mean, right now we can't drive across, although that's about to change. Don't let Mike in. <laughs> Don't let Mike in. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, next, we have Mel Ola or Melanie Ola. So Mel-ola. we'll just go with Mel Ola. Mel Ola. And Melanie is from... Shedekamp, Nova Scotia. Yay, my blue nosers. Stepping up. What's it called? Shedekamp? Shedekamp. Shedekamp. C-H-E-T-I-C-A-M-P. Shedekamp. Shedekamp. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so what do you think Mel does there in Shedekamp, Nova Scotia? Nuclear physicist. Probably. I wouldn't doubt it. I, I think uh, there's a lot of nuclear physicism going on there and physicism <laughs> going on there in Shetta Camp. Yeah. I'm pretty, pretty certain that you are right on the money. There's massive uranium mine there, isn't there? There is uh, probably. Yeah. There's re- uranium mines all over Nova Scotia. Yeah. So. Is there really? There are. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They're not massive, but there are uranium mines. Oh, okay. I was just making that shit up. <laughs> There you go. Well, there you go. <laughs> Matthew, it sort of hit on something by accident. Now I know what's wrong with you. Boop. A little bit too much uranium in your blood. Uranium? Friggin' near killed him. <laughs> oh, no, that, that, that didn't work. work. No, I tried. Thank you. We didn't get any donut money this week, so no donuts for us. Pot of donuts. But a good thing, because we're both trying to lose weight. So if you want to send us lettuce money... For salads. <laughs> Lettuce money. Go go ahead. Salad money, please. Salad money. Anyway, uh, thank you to all our patrons and Donut Money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And we'll make fun of you and where you're from Excellent. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's what we do. (laughs) If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is now available from any bookstore. So, yes, order it, please. Keep me housed. Even though you didn't dedicate the book to me. I dedicated the book to the all the people who didn't believe that they could do what they wanted to do, so they should go do it. I guess that's me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Bye. Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.